Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michelle Gelfand. She is a distinguished university professor at the University of Maryland, College Park. She uses field, experimental, computational, and neuroscience methods to understand the evolution of culture, as well as its multi-level consequences for human groups. Her work has been cited over 20,000 times and has been featured in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, National Public Radio, Voice of America, Fox News, NBC News, ABC News, The Economist, <laughs> among other outlets. She Finally, she's the author of a recent book that just came out last year, uh, rule makers, rule breakers, how tight and loose cultures wire the world. So, Dr. Gelfin, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Okay, great. So, maybe my first question would be, in your book you talk about tight and loose cultures, of course it's in the title, but, and you talk about the tightness and looseness continuum, continuum let's say. Could you tell us what uh, characterizes tight and loose cultures? Sure. So, um, you know, over the years I've been studying uh, cross-cultural differences and um, what I focused on is the social norms that we have across different cultural groups. And what's interesting is that culture is really this kind of puzzle. It's omnipresent, it's all around us, but it's invisible. We really take it for granted, and particularly we take it for granted social norms. And basically the gist is this, all groups have social norms or rule, rules for behavior. We follow norms constantly. In fact, we rarely think about how much we need social norms to predict each other's behavior. Um, but some groups have tighter social norms. They're much more strict and they have more punishments for deviating from the norms. And other groups are loose. They have much more permissiveness and a wider range of behavior that's permissible. And I've been studying tight and loose across pre-industrial societies, modern nations, states and organizations, and more recently in social classes. And it's a really interesting distinction that has a lot of um, what I call homology across different levels of analysis. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's interesting because as far as I understand it, and in your book you refer to this, this seems to be patterns that occur across different human cultures. That is, uh, this tightness and looseness continuum, it, it doesn't occur randomly. It follows maybe certain uh, factors that occur in different places and certain things like uh, um, I mean, I, I, I don't have a specific example coming to my mind yeah. at the moment, but when people are exposed to different ecological circumstances and even natural events, for example, uh, then they develop these different types of cultures, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, I was a student of Harry Triandis, who really developed um, in his 1972 book, Analysis of Subjective Culture, a really ecological approach to cultural differences. Um, not all cultural differences have um, some kind of rationale, but many do. And what I found in my research that was published a couple of years ago in Science, what we were trying to do is, first of all, see if we could measure the strength of norms. Um, and we could find, for example, that countries like Japan, Singapore, and Germany, and Austria veered tighter. And others like New Zealand, Brazil, the Netherlands, and Greece 
veered looser. And what we found was that there was a particular reason why, uh, at least one reason, but not more, more, of why these cultures were evolving to be tighter loose. Uh, and what really the basic gist is of that, when there's a lot of threat in cultural groups, uh, groups develop strong rules to coordinate to survive those threats. So for example, in our data, a lot of the tight cultures tend to have a lot of natural threats from Mother Nature, like disasters and famines, something like Japan has been contending with for centuries. Um, but also, um, we measured human-related threat. How many invasions um, did countries potentially have over the last hundred years? Or how much population density uh, do countries have? Singapore, for example, has close to 20,000 people per square mile, whereas New Zealand has like 30 people per square mile and more sheep per capita than people, I've been told. <laughs> and the idea is really pretty simple. When you have a lot of threat, um, you need to coordinate to survive, and strong norms help you do that. And we find this both at the national level, but also at the, at the state level. We can see that tight states tend to have more natural disasters and pathogens and food deprivation. We can see this at the level of social class. Uh, the working class suffers more threat, potential falling into poverty, and they develop stronger rules to, to, to deal with these issues. So it seems to be a pretty common pattern. And that's not to say that it's the only reason why tight and loose differences exist, but it's one important one. Mm -hmm. And does it have anything to do with natural selection? Because you've talked about, for example, differences that come about in 100 years or even just in a few decades. So it doesn't seem to me that uh, what you're talking about is people or groups of people being exposed to different ecological circumstances and then that affecting their genetic evolution in some way mm -hmm. and then they developing different frequencies of different, for example, yeah. personality traits and then different yeah. preferences that get expressed at a cultural level. You're yeah. talking mostly at a cultural evolutionary, uh, evolutionary mm -hmm. level, correct? Yeah, this is a great question. And, you know, it's a really wide open question because I think that there's a lot of interesting research that we could do on culture gene coevolution mm -hmm. um, that might apply to tight loose. We do have some data that show that in contexts where there's been a lot of threat um, and tight norms, that people have a higher percentage of the short allele gene um, that is linked to uh, issues of vigilance and anxiety. Uh, but again, this is really preliminary evidence, uh, it's correlational. And I think a really exciting new frontier is to look at how culture and genes co-evolve um, because that's a really natural next step in this kind of work. Mm -hmm. So could it be the case that some of the phenomena that you are studying across different cultures uh, result mostly from the fact that during their evolution different groups of people were exposed to different ecological circumstances and then these preferences sort of come from their genetic underlyings or something like that? Yeah, it's possible that they co-evolve, and a lot of, we need more research to look at that. I do think what's really fascinating, though, is that this is also something that can change quite rapidly in human groups. So whether threat is real or, um, or it's imagined, we tend to see a very similar tight psychology. When we measure, for example, how threatened people felt before the Trump election, whether it's by ISIS or immigration or North Korea, we could see that in those people who felt very threatened, felt the U.S. was too loose. And they, in turn, in part, this predicted their vote for Trump, who's promising, like many leaders, 
to return groups to a tight social order. We found the same exact pattern in France, where people who felt very threatened there also felt France was too loose, and this was in part um, affecting their vote for Le Pen. And actually, we could see in my own laboratory, when we temporarily activate threats, whether they're pathogens or terrorism threats, um, that we could see that people um, very quickly, at least temporarily, want stronger rules and, and, uh, and start having sort of tight signatures in terms of their preference for order over openness. So I think it's a really interesting um, distinction that not only evolves over longer periods of time, but can change quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Could that suggest then that people, uh, people all across the world have the same types of predispositions, but then because they are exposed to different environmental factors, let's say, that's when they activate or maybe tend to prefer things more related to a, a tight culture or on the other end, a more loose culture? Could that be the case? That's right. That's right. That's right. And sometimes those threats not, don't even have to be real. They could just be imagined um, to produce the same psychology. And, you know, what we've seen in some of our evolutionary game theoretic models is that even when you have a temporary increase in threat that you tend to start seeing very quickly um, that people evolve to be more cooperative and to punish people who are not cooperating, who are defecting. Um, but what's really super interesting is that in the asymmetry we see, when we see that we kind of decreased threat in human groups in these models, it takes a lot longer for them to lose that tight mentality. So there seems to be this kind of asymmetry. I've seen it with some other data from some people in economics that the same thing, it's easier uh, to get people to tighten up with threat than it is to loosen them. So more recently, we're trying to look at how do we activate or how do we help people who are not really threatened actually um, become looser. And this is important because what I found in my research is that tight and loose confers a very, very uh, predictable signature for human groups. Tight groups tend to have a lot of order. They have less crime, uh, more synchrony, and they have more self-control, which makes sense because you're regulating your behavior more to fit into social norms. Um, but loose cultures, they have a lot of disorder. <laughs> they have much more crime, less synchrony, and they have a host of self-regulation failures. But they corner the market on openness, on openness to different people, to different ideas, and to change. And so you could see that both groups um, have strengths to them, and, and both have liabilities. Uh, tight cultures corner the market on order, but they have a lot of ethnocentrism, and they have less creativity. So it's really important that um, this tight, loose, order, and openness trade-off um, is something that we are trying to negotiate. We don't want groups um, to become too extreme in either direction, is what my research suggests uh, in what I call the Goldilocks principle of tight-loose. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, talking specifically about loose cultures, because I guess that since we're referring to how people deal with the social norms that they have operating in their societies, that this could get a little bit confusing, because uh, since people in loose cultures tend to be a little bit more tolerant if other people do not follow strictly the rules that operate in their society, that doesn't mean that they don't have any social norms, they have them, it's just they, that they perhaps uh, don't punish people as much if they fail to follow the rules strictly. Right? That's right. There's much more, that's right, you can think about a, a context like 
the classroom, and I've compared these across different cultures. I mean, clearly classrooms have norms, um, but what you find is that in loose cultures, there's a much wider range of behavior that's acceptable in those contexts. For example, you might see people eating, you might see people on their headphones or on their phones, or you might see people you know, with purple hair or in pajamas <laughs> in these contexts. But in tight cultures, you see a much more restricted range of behavior. There's much more uh, specific behaviors that you have to engage in. Um, and if you don't, then you would get censored. So the, the issue here is that all groups have social norms and we need them to predict each other's behavior. But some groups have much more latitude in what's permissible and what's um, sanctioned and other groups have much more restricted range of behavior. And what's really fascinating is that we constantly navigate differences in the strength of norms in everyday life. So if you and I you know, are in this interview, we're, follow, we're in a tighter context than if we were out at a bar. Or if you're in a library, this is a much tighter situation. Goffman talked about this in early days. Um, he actually differentiated tight and loose situations. And so we are constantly and effortlessly, without even realizing it, navigating the strength of norms you know, we don't start start doing really weird things when we're giving a colloquium. I've always wanted to like break out a cigar or a bourbon or dance during giving a talk, you know, just to see people's reactions. But we don't don't do that because we're just we we learn to follow norms from a very early age. Uh, but again, there's just much more latitude in some contexts than others. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay, so, and in your book, you also refer to other types of ways of classifying different cultures. You refer, for example, to the collectivistic, individualistic continuum, and people also talk about, for example, when it comes to politics, to the liberal, conservative political spectrum. Uh, is it the case that the tightness-looseness continuum uh, has any sort of relationship with these other ways of uh, classifying yeah. uh, different cultures or not? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really important question because, you know, for a very long time, and me included, I was working with Harry Trandes on collectivism, individualism for many years when I was a graduate student. And for a long time, we were classifying cultures in terms of how interdependent they were with their families and their close others, what we call collectivism versus emphasizing privacy and independence. Um, and what was interesting is that much of our research was done with East Asia and the United States. And in fact, in our data, uh, tight loose is related to collectivism. It's correlated about 0.4, but it's also distinct. And, and by comparing only East Asia and the US, we were really confounding these differences because many countries in East Asia tend to be tight and collectivistic. And the US tends to, and Western Europe in general, tends to be loose and individualistic. But you can think about the off diagonals that really we've been missing. And we know that there are countries that are tight, but also individualistic, um, emphasize privacy, less emphasize family uh, focus, like for example, Austria and Germany and, and Switzerland. But we also know there are some collectivistic cultures that are not tight, they're much looser, more permissive. And that includes in our data, like places like Brazil. Um, where there is a family orientation, but there's much more um, relaxed sense, um, and there's much more permissibility. Um, there's much more diversity in these contexts, which is another predictor of looseness. So what's really fascinating is that this correlation between tightness and collectivism is not just um, modest at the national level. We see it at the state level that there are, you know, you could think about the four quadrants at the U.S. 50 states. Um, and we also see that even in pre-industrial societies, um, that they're distinct. Um, there's some work by Susan Carpenter that showed that some years ago. So that's an important thing to, to emphasize. Um, same with liberal conservative. Clearly, 
uh, conservatives support tighter norms. They are focused on traditional order, um, and liberals will be more supportive of looser norms. But clearly, we have contexts where conservatives live in contexts where there's loose norms and vice versa. So um, it's really exciting to really uh, add to our cultural toolkit uh, as Michael Bond, another cross-cultural psychologist, argues, uh, so that we can expand um, the way that we understand cultures. There's not one single way to understand them. And for many years, we really were relying on just one dimension. And, you know, you can imagine in personality research, it, what if we were only studying like introversion and extroversion out of the big five <laughs> or the big six, uh, wherever we are these days on how many dimensions we have, you know, that would be restricting our range of how we understand personality. And this is exactly what was happening with cross-cultural research is that we were really kind of um, focusing on values and one cluster of values to the exclusion of other types of um, cultural norms and beliefs and, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So these tightness and looseness uh, preferences, let's say, uh, you study them mostly at a collective slash group level. Uh, could it be the case that they also occur at an individual level, that there are individual differences in terms of mm -hmm. tightness and looseness? Well, this is a really important question, and it gets to some of the kind of interesting and important le levels of analysis issues that we have to deal with when we're doing cross-cultural research. You know, for a long time we were calling collectivists individuals and collectivist cultures as if they were the same things and confounding levels of analysis. And in the work on tight-loose, I've been avoiding calling individuals tight or loose. What I think is that there's a certain suite of personality characteristics that help people fit into the strength or weakness of the norms in their environment. So if you live in a culture, and we show this in the paper in Science, if you live in a culture that has very tight norms, you tend to have much higher self-monitoring, you have more self-control, impulse control, more prevention focus to try to fit into those norms, and have more need for structure, where, because your environment has more social order, so it mirrors itself in terms of individual uh, preferences for order. If you live in a context where there's very um, much weaker rules or more permissive rules, then you need to have a different set of suite of attributes that helps you fit into that. You need to tolerate more ambiguity because there's so much more ambiguity in what's happening around you. You might see people doing weird things all the time. <laughs> you know, you you have less of a need to self-monitor. You have less of a need to have a lot of impulse control. So there's not one individual difference that's associated with the tight loose mindset. There's really interesting, there's a suite of them uh, in terms of self-monitoring, impulse control and regulation and uh, need for structure. So I think that we can figure out where we might individually fall on those attributes. Um, I have actually a quiz on my website that's on a tight loose mindset quiz that draws on exactly these individual difference variables. Um, and we can sort of think about, well, I might veer tight in terms of my mindset, in terms of those attributes, or veer loose. Actually, my husband and I uh, vary on this. He's, he veers tighter. He's a lawyer and came from different circumstances. I veer more loose. Um, and, you know, at the same time, like I said, we can constantly change our mindsets depending on the situation. And we learn that effortlessly. So we might have a default on these mindsets, but we still can change them. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, you know, sort of a, um, an important issue I think you raised because uh, it's important to think about culture as a system that operates at different levels of analysis and clearly these individual adaptations help people to navigate the strength of norms or lack thereof in their context. Um, and uh, we need to kind of think about how we define our measures at different levels uh, so that we avoid this kind of, um, you know, uh, fallacy that we have the same attributes at different levels of analysis. 
So a few minutes ago, you you've alluded quickly to the big five. Do you know if there would be any relationship between the tightness looseness continuum and any particular set of big five personality traits? Or? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I, I mentioned this to you before we started the show. I, I so appreciate your show because not only do you have such a wide range of academics and scientists on your show, but you clearly read the work and you have a better handle on it than anyone that's interviewed me before. So I appreciate that. Uh, and the answer, the answer to your question is de most definitely. Um, the, two, the two dimensions that are most relevant are conscientiousness and, um, and openness. And that's because conscientiousness has a lot to do with order. And we know that uh, tight societies and groups at different levels have a lot of threat, uh, generally. And so they require uh, more order. And so conscientiousness is a dimension that is activated and it's socialized in these contexts. Whereas in loose contexts that tend to have less threat, there's more openness. Um, and there's less conscientiousness. And we can see that in our state-level data quite clearly. Tight states have, on average, people that score higher on conscientiousness but lower on openness and vice versa, with loose states have people um, that score higher on openness but lower on conscientiousness. Uh, actually, some other data I talk about in the book that shows that tight states have more politeness uh, and, and loose states are much more rude. <laughs> so that kind of leads into that. Uh, I'm, from, I'm a native New Yorker originally. I can, I can attest to the fact New York is one of the rudest states in the union. Uh, but on the flip side, you know, there's much more openness in loose states and they're much more fun, the data shows. They have many more activities that are uh, at people's disposals, recreational activities and so forth. And, and the tight states tend to be more boring, according to this data. So, you know, you can sort of think about these as important trade-offs that we have at, at different uh, for different groups in terms of the order versus openness that directly map on to those two personality attributes. Mm -hmm. So you've also referred briefly to the sort of strengths and weaknesses or advantages and disadvantages of each of the two types of uh, cultures in terms of their extremes, let's put it that way. But I, I mean, just to make this point clear, you're not saying that one of them is unconditionally better than the other. It depends on the circumstances and on what people want for their societies, right? That, that's right. And what's been adaptive. Um, you know, I think that um, order is very important in contexts where there's a lot of threat. Openness is, is, is more important when there's less threat. Um, and they, de they directly have trade-offs. So, for example, um, we could see that uh, there's much more uniformity and synchrony in what people wear and the cars they drive and even the clocks in their city streets in tight cultures. We've analyzed data from Levine's data where we could see that in tight cultures, when you look at clocks around the cities, they, they all pretty much at the same time. Whereas in loose cultures like Brazil and Greece, you're not totally sure what time it is. <laughs> there's much less uniformity and synchrony. And like I said, tight cultures have much more self-regulation. So our data show across the board, they have less alcoholism, less drug abuse, less debt, and they're even less obese than in loose cultures. Uh, on the flip side, you know, loose cultures have much more openness, and in our studies we've sent people around the world wearing fake warts on their face, for example. Uh, you can buy these on the internet, or you, we've had them wearing tattoos and, and nose rings and ask for help in city streets. And in loose cultures, people were very open-minded to these, these RAs that I sent around the world, but in tight cultures they got less help. So you could see there's a trade-off um, between order and openness. But what's really important and something you alluded to is that what I found is that as countries get 
extreme in either direction, um, whether they become extraordinarily loose or extraordinarily tight, then they start to have really big problems for different reasons. Um, loose, extraordinary loose cultures have very little predictability and almost anime, as Durkheim would call it. Um, uh, really a tremendous amount of disorder. Uh, on the flip side, extraordinarily tight cultures are very repressive and it's people want to, as Durkheim said here, also want to escape from these contexts, what he called fatalistic suicide as compared to the flip side, animate suicide. And that's exactly what we found. We found this curvilinear relationship whereby countries that had either extreme levels of looseness or tightness had higher depression, suicide, um, had um, lower life expectancy, had lower happiness. And I call this the Goldilocks principle of tight loose, and it has, I think, really important implications um, that groups might need to veer tight or loose for good reasons, but as they get extreme, it produces a lot of problems. And I believe it also creates a lot of problems around the world in terms of events that we are experiencing. And so we need to be mindful of, um, of groups that are getting too tight or too loose uh, because they tend to have a lot of instability. Mm -hmm. So talking specifically about the United States, there's this divide between the northern and the southern states. And I've already had on the show people like doctors Richard Nisbet and Me? Randy Thornhill. And we talked about different approaches as to why, for example, the southern states are uh, tend to be more religious, more collectivistic. They have more violence and higher crime rates and things like that. Uh, is it the case that they also differ in terms of the tightness looseness continuum? Or not? Yes, mo most definitely. And, um, you know, we could see that um, the tight states, uh, particularly in the South, um, are very tight in our data. Um, the, the southern states are very tight. And what's interesting is that, you know, what I would say is that um, Tight cultures um, don't necessarily have to have honor orientation, but cultures that tend to have an honor orientation, like we see in the U.S. South, that evolved for good reasons, tend to be tight. So um, honor cultures have many, many different rules for behavior, and we see that also in the South um, as compared to the coasts. In our ancient history, we could see that um, people who settled in the South came from contexts where highly honor-oriented, where there are very strict rules, for good reasons, because they existed in weak institutional environments where having strict rules really helped uh, people survive. On the coast, what we see is there was a lot more diversity. As early as, you know, the early 1800s, we see many different groups living on the East Coast, migrating to the West Coast, tremendous amount of diversity. And diversity is a big predictor of looseness because it's harder to agree upon any particular standard. So for sure, there's a strong connection between um, the South and tightness. Uh, in fact, even I talk about in the book during the Civil War, the South, from some historian perspectives, felt like they were being invaded by the North, that their livelihood was being threatened. And we know that um, external threat is a big predictor of tightness. So it's just to say that these things, uh, these states do vary on tight loose uh, for reasons that we could see that are similar to the national level. Mm -hmm. And is it also the case that in the same country or in the same state, for example, that we can also find differences uh, in terms of tightness and looseness between uh, different social strata, for example, between the working class and the upper class? 
That's right. Absolutely. And in fact, just to, to back up a second, like you said, you can in any state kind of zoom in and find places that are loose, even in a tight state, like in Austin, for example, in Texas or New Orleans is a good example of a loose context and a tight context, too. Um, and so um, I think this lens is really useful to kind of analyze culture at different levels of analysis. And our most recent work is on social class. We know that the working class varies in terms of their family interdependence um, and collectivism, but also they vary in terms of their tight social rules. This is something that um, Melvin Cohn started writing about um, in the uh, late 60s um, on class and conformity. And what he argued is that the working class parents teach their kids to follow rules. And his argument was that it's because they're going to be in occupations where they have less discretion. So it's important to follow rules. If you're going to be in a manufacturing job um, where uh, rules matter, then you need to learn that early on in life. Um, what we were recently studying is the role of threat, just like we've looked at it at other levels of analysis. And we can see very clearly when we sample people from the working class and the upper class that it's the working class that feels very threatened. And this is highly correlated with their reports of having stricter rules in their households. Actually, we did one study with our youngest age of three-year-old kids, and we brought them into the lab, uh, kids from the working class and the, the upper class, and we had them interacting with a puppet. This is Michael Tomasello's really ingenious paradigm. Uh, you can't really ask three-year-olds what they think about strict versus permissive rules, <laughs> but what you could do is have them interacting with a puppet called Max. And Max is befriending this kid and is playing lots of new games with them that they never played. And what's fascinating is that after a little while, Max does starts basically violating the rules. He becomes Max the norm violator. And we can simply look at, you know, how do um, the kids react to Max when he starts breaking the rules? And we see big, really big differences across the working and upper class. The working class kids start protesting much more and they're upset with Max for violating the rules. The upper class give Max more... Uh, some wiggle room. They start laughing at Max. They're a little less upset about what Max is doing. So we can see these differences become embrained very, very early in life. Um, and again, it's because of real um, important ecological differences in, 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 in what kinds of threats that people have to experience in their daily life. Do you know what is the earliest stage where children already exhibit that they have been sort of acquiring or absorbing these sorts of social dynamics, let's say? Yeah, this is such a good question, and it's fascinating. There's some work in developmental psychology that looks at even infants seem to have some normative radar. Um, there's studies where infants um, will reach for puppets. This is a way that you can look at their sort of preference for different puppets. And they'll reach for puppets that have been really um, normatively very cooperative, but they will avoid puppets who have been beating up other puppets or doing other nasty things. So it's fascinating, even before we have language, you know, we see that there's a preference, there's some kind of normative radar. And I think that speaks to just how critical norms are for human societies. It's one of these really important differences uh, or important um, mechanisms that give us the social glue that we need to stay together and the most difficult of circumstances. So uh, it's a fascinating area. I think norm psychology is really taking off as an area. For many years, we focused on individual differences. We were from the West, where psychology really evolved. Um, but nowadays, we're, we're seeing many people from different disciplines studying social norms. I just uh, actually conducted a workshop with Sergey Gervais and also with Nathan Nunn. Uh, economist as well as a com 
computer scientists, on social norms, and we invited people from many disciplines to come and talk about what's happening in their areas. And we're excited to really keep um, building this community because it's such an important part of human sociality. Mm -hmm. So, uh, would it be fair to say or correct to say that we are, as human beings, hardwired to acquire norms, but the specific types of norms and how we deal with them, then that's, that depends a little bit more on the culture we are exposed to? I think it's a really interesting proposition and you know we're just starting to do a lot of work at neuroscience of norms and seeing what is the sort of neural signature of norms uh, and also how they differ across cultures and we see some similarity for example when we have US and Chinese viewing many different norm violations as compared to control situations like for example they read that Michelle is in the library shouting versus Michelle is in the library studying we could see that um, areas that are involved in the detection of incongruity are really pretty similarly active in the central parietal area among the US and Chinese subjects but we do see big differences in the frontal region as people are processing this information the region of the mind that we know is much more associated with punishment decisions and with theory of mind and so forth and that's where we see Chinese are much more active in terms of the frontal activity um, as compared to Americans um, and so we're just beginning now to look at norms both at the individual level and even at the group level we have a recent study out that uses hyper scanning to look at how threat affects brain synchrony between people and how that facilitates coordination which is something that I've written a lot about when it comes to tight cultures. It's really about the need to coordinate under situations of threat. So we can start looking with group level neuroscience techniques to look at how are norms being uh, essentially instantiated in the brain at the individual and collective level. Mm -hmm. So a, a very specific thing that you refer to in your book is how levels of tightness and looseness in a given country, for example, uh, correlate with certain types of health outcomes, like for, uh, like for example, rates of depression, suicide, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and so on and so forth. Could you tell us about that? Well, that's right. So I mentioned earlier that there doesn't seem to be any linear relationship between tight and loose and these outcomes. In fact, for centuries we've, we've been debating this question of should nations have more freedom or looseness or should they have more constraint? Um, and in terms of like what makes for a happy society or a well-functioning society. People like Plato and Confucius and Hobbes, for that matter, who had a really dismal view of the world, <laughs> thought that we need rules. And then you had people, you know, like John Stuart Mill or we had Freud who thought that, you know, rules make people neurotic. And he was obviously had some issues. <laughs> so, you know, which is right, which is correct. And, you know, the question about well-being in society is really not received a ton of of uh, empirical analysis and what I find is that again the extremes are really what the problem are the extreme levels of tightness where there's unpredictability other there's too much constraint and extreme levels of looseness where there's too much unpredictability uh, are both correlated negatively with those outcomes so this is where we could see that cultures might veer tight or loose for good reasons but the extremes really produce maladaptive outcomes and what's really interesting is that um, what happens also in context where there's becoming much more looseness, where things are getting really chaotic, then often people in those contexts feel that they want to return to a tight social order. Where this happened in Egypt, 
for example, when Mubarak was overthrown, at first people were think, screaming freedom in the streets. And we were collecting data there at the same time. And what we found was that over time, people started feeling the environment was completely and extraordinarily loose and chaotic. And the more people perceived that, the more they wanted a Salafi government or the Muslim Brotherhood. So we see this, what we call autocratic recidivism happening when countries, for whatever reason, start to veer extraordinarily loose, it tends to predict a pendulum shift to uh, extreme tightness. So it's something we need to kind of look out for and understand that those contexts, when there's normlessness, invite tight forces, extremist forces, invite people like Duterte, who is very popular as far as I know in this Philippines, uh, to step in and provide order where there was none. So this is a longer answer to your question about why these extremes are not only producing um, negative outcomes for societies, but they also invite a lot of these pendulum shifts mm -hmm. that we see happening, these puzzling behaviors that we can't quite understand, but from a tight loose perspective, they're pretty predictable. Mm -hmm. Th that's very interesting that both of the extremes produce these sorts of negative results at the level of health outcomes because uh, I would imagine very easily that people would think that maybe people that would live in more loose cultures would have more health problems because since it is associated with uh, lower uh, levels of conscientiousness in this case then uh, they would they wouldn't follow uh, the indications provided by their doctors that much and they, and they would discount the future more. So, uh, I, I mean, would that make sense? Or? Yeah, I think that, you know, what we see is that clearly there's, for example, more obesity um, in loose cultures, like you, do, you were alluding to, um, self-regulation types of problems. There's more crime in general. Um, but there's also much higher levels of creativity and innovation. Um, and there's much more tolerance. So these speak to different criteria. It's really when these countries get or groups get more extreme that we start seeing that the benefits that tightness gives cultures when they get really extreme starts to really go down. And the benefits that looseness gives in moderately loose context also as it gets extreme starts to fall apart. Um, and as I mentioned, Durkheim called this atomic suicide versus fatalistic suicide. And if we are able to see that pattern um, at the national level, and actually what's fascinating is you could see the same phenomenon at different levels. For example, um, we know that from a parenting perspective, that parents that are very helicopter-like and parents that are very laissez-faire, who just let their kids do what they want, both produce maladaptive kids. So it's that sweet spot of tight loose, even in parenting, that's really important. Groups might, again, like the working class, might need to veer tighter, or other groups might be allowed to veer looser. But as we get extreme in these continuums, we produce more maladaptive kids. The same could be said of organizations. Um, you know, you have places like United that had a lot of problems. Arguably, United needs to be tight. It's an airline. They have a lot of coordination issues and safety issues. But they were arguably getting too tight with people just blindly following the rules. And they needed to insert what I called some discretion, some flexibility uh, to be more um, flexibly tight. Um, on the flip side, you have places like Tesla. I've recently written about this. That arguably should be loose. It's a high-tech startup. Um, but they also were experiencing a lot of production problems, a lot of 
extreme looseness. What, arguably, they need to insert a little bit of structure, what I call structured looseness, because they were getting too extreme in the opposite direction. So again, groups need to veer tight or loose for good reasons, even in this context of industries. But the more extreme they get, the more difficult they have in terms of their, um, their company cultures. Even something like innovation um, requires both looseness to create ideas, but it requires tightness to scale up. So the best leaders are basically ambidextrous. They know how to balance tight and loose. And I think that's a really important thing that we can negotiate these cultural differences. They're not destiny. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe one of the aspects there that really plays a big role in terms of health outcomes at the level of societies and talking about the extremes of looseness and tightness would be stress, that, because I would very easily imagine that in very tight cultures, people would, would arrive at a level where, where they would be completely obsessed with monitoring the behavior of all the other people around them. And in very loose cultures, uh, I, I mean, maybe social norms would start to break down and, exactly. people, and people would no longer know uh, how to deal with each other. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, that you just are, you don't have any mechanisms to co coordinate in those contexts. And that's why we start liking strong leaders. <laughs> we like autocracies in these contexts because they provide necessarily order. And, and, and so this is exactly right. They, they produce um, maladaptive outcomes for different reasons, uh, different psychological processes. And it's just important to keep an eye out on, on when countries are starting to have these kind of normative collapses or getting too tight. Uh, ISIS is another example for, you know, of course, there's many reasons why ISIS evolved and was successful at one point in time. Um, but one of the reasons why they were initially accepted in some areas is because they were providing a lot of order in places where there was just normlessness and a collapse of any kind of um, social, um, social order. Um, and so when they came into certain regions in Iraq, they provided justice systems, they provided food, electricity, um, et cetera. And again, when there's normlessness, it invites extremist forces to take over because as humans, we need some balance of order and autonomy. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is all very interesting. Let me just ask you perhaps one final question because I'm also getting a bit mindful about your time now. Uh, <laughs> let me just ask you this. Do you think that this knowledge that you and other people have been producing about tightness and looseness and things like that, that we could harness it to try to solve some of the big uh, world level problems that we have right now to deal with, like, for example, climate change? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And toward the end of the book, I start talking about how, you know, we develop norms as humans, like we created norms and we can negotiate them for more healthy uh, societies and, and for the world. And often we need to start calibrating um, the strength of norms deliberately, mindfully. Um, for example, Iceland did this some years ago. For a long time, they were getting extraordinarily loose. The cities were unsafe. Kids were out and about and drinking and smoking, and it had really high levels of these kinds of problems in terms of social order. And and you know, in this context, they decided we're going to try to tighten up. We're going to have more monitoring. 
We're going to try to steer kids into other pursuits. And they did it collectively. Um, and they started to insert some more structure, some more tightness in a loose context. Um, you know, this is really important to calibrate. Um, other times, we have to loosen tight norms that have perhaps been outdated. And this applies to a lot of gender rules and norms. Uh, for example, for large families, um, that is butting heads with overpopulation. Uh, in fact, I think what's really exciting is that places like the World Bank and, and, and the Gates Foundation, they're now funding a lot of work on social norms because for many years we thought we're just really in the business of changing attitudes. But what we realized over time is it's really social norms that we have to contend with for many societal issues. And just changing attitudes might not do anything in context, especially tight context where people are worried about being punished for doing something that's different. Um, and even put things like the internet really have um, really exciting um, new capabilities in terms of connectivity, but arguably this new world that we live in is sort of the wild, wild west. It's extraordinarily loose. Uh, it produces a lot of bullying, a lot of um, incivility. In and so there's a question of how will we tighten norms in this context, but not, but not squelching the kind of dissent and freedom that it affords us in very positive ways. It's, I'm optimistic that we will evolve to have a balance of social norms on the internet, just like we've done for all of our human history as we've scaled up or encountered different situations. But at the same time, um, we have to be mindful and, and start to talk about norms and, and the strength of norms more actively and negotiate them to, to help facilitate that process. Mm -hmm. And what about uh, political polarization and the rise of both uh, the extreme right and the extreme left mm -hmm. uh, in response to issues like, for example, the financial crisis and high levels of migration and things like that? Do you think that this sort of uh, framework could help us deal with those issues? I do. I, and I think that, you know, what we've missed is that, you know, there are people that feel very threatened from globalization, um, from the reduction of jobs in, in their towns, and, and that we need to help avoid um, people, you know, wanting extreme governments to help them by helping them deal with threat. I think that places like Germany, for example, uh, help the working class much more with standardization of certificates that can be used in different companies. It, we need to, in the United States, help to people who do feel actually threatened to help create partnerships between local towns and, and community colleges and big business to help to facilitate what people perceive to be real threat. On the flip side, there's also a lot of fake threat that obviously we're talking about now in psychology and beyond, where we have to help people to calibrate threat more rationally. We know from our data that people vastly overestimate the uh, amount of illegal immigration. People vastly uh, misunderstand that, for example, many immigrant communities are very tight. They actually have more norm abidance and less crime than natives do. But still people have very strong misperceptions about immigration. And so what we're dealing with is having to navigate real threat that some groups have and also fake threat that's producing unnecessary tightness. And it's really, um, at the same time, will affect innovation, creativity, and openness, the tight loose trade-off unnecessarily. So that's an important thing to think about is you know trying to negotiate fake threat. Mm -hmm. And talking about fake threat, uh, it also includes the way people overreact to terrorism, for example. 
right? That's right, exactly. Just in terms of base rates, and we know from Steven Pinker's work, you know, that we're actually much safer in many ways as humans. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be mindful of threats, as he talks about, I talk about. But what's amazing is how much tightening is happening based on misperceptions. Right. Okay, so Dr. Gelfand, let's end the interview here. But just before we go, uh, apart from your book, what would be the best places on the internet for people to find your work? Oh, thank you so much. Uh, really, my website, michellegelfand.com, is where you'll find everything. Um, my research is all um, uploaded there, my papers, as well as other um, writings for popular media. Um, and also I have a place for people to write in to me, to give me stories and, uh, and ways that they've had personal uh, experience with the tight loose framework. Uh, and that's been really interesting to me, to get feedback from people all over the world about other places that they've seen this dimension important that maybe I hadn't thought about. And, you know, we, we are really excited about research on this topic, so we'll, we get ideas and we keep going on it. <laughs> and, um, we have a new dictionary also uh, that was just published in Nature Human Behavior that diagnoses the strength of norms um, uh, in, in text and we analyzed uh, how the loosening of the U.S. over the last 200 years. And so we're interested in using it to understand uh, uh, big data and that is also on the website. So please come and check it out and be in touch um, through the website or through email and um, I want to thank you again for your podcast, I think it's incredible resource for people, academics and non-academics alike, um, because not only are you getting scientists from all over the fields, but also your questions are really um, insightful and, and right on with the content. <laughs> so I encourage people to listen in on your podcast. I'm going to be uh, listening for a long time to all your interviews. Okay, thank you very much for your kind words. It was, again, really a pleasure to have you on the show. And I will be leaving links in the description box of the video or the podcast for people to go and check out your work. And I really loved the book, so I recommend it to all of my listeners and viewers. Thank you so much. Hi there, thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, otherwise, I also have a PayPal and Subscribestar. And if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Iane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, and Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, and Ruth Gervois, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.